Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, sitting in for Laura Byrne, and this week, why did the US and the UK start bombing Yemen? With the Israeli attacks continuing on Gaza, the world started to worry about contagion in the Middle East. So when a rebel group from Yemen started to attack cargo ships in the Red Sea, having a knock-on impact on shipping and trade, and poking Western powers into military action, people finally started to pay attention to a country which has been in some form of war for two decades. Back in 2015, the fine producer of this podcast, Nikki Ryan, and myself wrote a piece titled You Need to Read About Yemen. We had been posting articles about the civil war on the journal, but we knew people on our side of the world weren't engaging with what was happening there. For a while, humanitarian organizations managed to put some spotlight on events, but it soon became the forgotten war. The death toll from the conflict is north of 155,000 people, and UNICEF says more than 23 million people, including almost 13 million children, are in need of humanitarian assistance. Garnering such little attention for so long and then a sudden escalation means there are so many questions to answer. Who are the Houthis? What do they want? And how has the world barely noticed the war in Yemen? Joining me today to answer these questions is Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, the mistress of Girton College at Cambridge University and an Arabist and Middle East specialist who authored one of the best pieces I have read on the issues in the Red Sea on Engelsberg ideas. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. And can I start you off by asking what your experience is of Yemen? I've been going in and out of Yemen for over a decade now and all the way through the civil war period as well. Now, most of my experience of Yemen has been in the east of the country, which is a much more tribal area and quite remotely located versus the capital. But one of the things that always struck me about going in and out of Yemen is that as opposed to what a lot of people might think, it's a really scary place because everybody's got guns, is just how immensely hospitable and friendly and welcoming everybody is. Because of my own interest in Arabic poetry, and that's where I first, how I first went into Yemen, I was hunting for Arabic poetry. And, you know, I, I managed to get under the skin of quite a lot of tribal culture and became a, it became a bit like a family going in and out. And, and I was always picked up at the border and driven around. I've never had to spend any money at all because I've always been a guest. And that's probably quite important because it keeps you safe. As soon as money exchanges hands, you know, there, there could be a danger of being kidnapped. But that is never the case in my own travels. So you went in hunting for Arabic poetry, but in a, such a geopolitical situation where now you became an expert in what's happening. Well, that's right. I mean, I wasn't just looking for poetry. I was yeah. also doing work on Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was a particular fascination of mine. By the way, they use a lot of poetry in their propaganda, so it wasn't completely unrelated. And yeah, and when the war happened, I became very, very interested in trying to help communities bolster their own security and keep themselves uh, as safe as possible from all of the militias that have been rife in Yemen. I think people will be surprised that you were able to kind of go in and out through the civil war. But without getting into too much detail of that yet, were you surprised at the recent escalation from the UK and US? Probably the reason that most of our listeners will have heard about Yemen in the last uh, few months. No, I was not surprised. Uh, in the way I haven't been surprised by many of the escalations in Yemen. When I was in the capital, Sana'a, in 2012 and 2013, 
and during the national dialogue mediated by the UN. So that's the time of the Arab Spring Revolution and then the national dialogue. Every time we heard gunfire, the tribesmen I was with who were accompanying me from the east of the country would fall about laughing and say, oh yeah, that's the national dialogue, ha ha. Because for them, it was always a war in waiting. And escalation, somehow it's always expected. With this latest escalation, I think it's something that the Houthis, who are the group who've been firing missiles into the Red Sea, had in one sense been hoping for. They'd been hoping to drag America in to more military engagement with them in Yemen because it plays to their base. Yeah, let's go back to basics and, and we'll get to that. Who exactly are the Houthis? The Houthis are a group that emerged in the northwest of Yemen. They're named after their former leader, Hussein al-Houthi. That's where they get their name from. He was killed in 2004, but their current leader, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, is one of his brothers. But it's really important not to see them as just a tribe. They're not just a tribal group. They're much bigger than that. They're a, a political group, religious group, and a huge military operation all at the same time. What's important here is that their core belief, the core belief of the ruling family, the Houthi family, is Zaidi. That's a branch of Shiism. And that, of course, is also the predominant sect in of Islam in Iran. They're a minority within Islam. But think about this for a moment. Their political arm is called Ansar Allah. That means supporters, partisans of God. So it shows how entwined their politics is with their religion. And maybe it's also worth pointing out to listeners that this isn't just some small rebel group tucked away in Yemen. This is now a huge enterprise. The Houthis control territory in Yemen in which about two thirds of the population lives. So that's 20 million people. So they're a very significant adversary. And who are they aligned with? So they're aligned with Iran. That's their biggest backer and supporter. They share Shi'i beliefs, albeit slightly different branch of Shi'ism uh, in the Houthi areas than in Iran. But they're part of what Iran calls its axis of resistance. So more broadly, they would be aligned with Iran's other partners and proxies, Hezbollah in Lebanon, not so much, actually, Hamas in Gaza, although they sympathize very much with the Palestinian cause, and perhaps also be considered partners alongside Shi'i militias in Iraq and Syria. But their big backers are Iran. Would you call them a proxy as much as maybe Hezbollah, which we'd probably be a bit more familiar with here because of our peacekeeping missions in Lebanon? Right. No, they're not a proxy in quite the same way as Hezbollah. The Houthis' interests are very much aligned with Iran, and so they collaborate and they partner. Their slogan, for example, is very similar to Iran's slogan, death to America, death to Israel, a curse on the Jews and victory to Islam. But they're not under the direct command and control of Iran, not as much as, say, Hezbollah in Lebanon would be. And of course, they're enthusiastic to be doing what they're doing currently in the Red Sea for their own reasons. It works for them in, in many different ways beyond just serving Iran's 
greater agenda for the Middle East. Part of the remarkable nature of this is just how long there has been war or, as you said, a war in waiting. So we're kind of going forward and backwards in, in modern history. But where did they fit into the Arab Spring that you mentioned earlier? The Houthis had been fighting back against what they considered to be their marginalization in Yemen since the end of their state in 1962. So I'm going back a little bit here, but this context is quite important because after the their imamate, this is a religious-based state that they had, ended in 1962 in the north of Yemen, they were marginalized religiously, politically, economically, and they started to mobilize to fight back against that. But that actually boiled over into war in 2004, and they fought six wars against the Yemeni government until 2010. And then when the Arab Spring came, the Houthis put down their weapons and they joined in the revolution and they had high hopes. But it didn't really work out the way that the Houthis had anticipated or hoped. They were not winners out of the Arab Spring and the national dialogue that followed didn't really give them anything they wanted. They didn't have access to power, to territory, to resources, oil, to a seaport. All of that was off the cards for them. And so they ended up taking over the capital, Sana'a, in September 2014. And that was the start of the most recent civil war. And what type of fighting is happening and who is fighting, who's involved? What does it look like? The civil war at the moment has three main elements. There are the Houthis who are based in Sana'a. They ousted the previous government, which retreated mostly to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And then this other group emerged who wanted a separate state in the south. They're called the Southern Transitional Council and are based in Aden. So we have three power blocks based in Sana'a, in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, and in Aden in the south of Yemen. Now, those last two power blocks, the government and the Southern Transitional Council, have now merged into a presidential leadership council. So to put this in a really succinct way, we now have the Houthis on the one hand, backed by Iran, and a presidential leadership council on the other hand, backed by Saudi Arabia and to some extent also the United Arab Emirates. And who controls you? Obviously mentioned earlier that two thirds of the population live in Houthi controlled land, but territorial wise, do they also control most of the land? Are they still the most powerful? So territory wise, they, the Houthis really only control the West Coast. Moving down toward central Yemen, they don't control the south of Yemen. The south coast is controlled by the, really, by the Southern Transitional Council, at least up to halfway along. And then we have the Presidential Leadership Council, which is a bigger umbrella organization that controls uh, most of the rest of Yemen. But in reality, government control is very weak. And really, Yemen is controlled by tribal militias and other conglomerates who operate under the umbrella of the bigger blocks that I've mentioned. So it's a really complex tapestry of different loyalties and alignments, which are very fluid, which makes it so hard to solve this Yemen civil war, because there's lots of side swapping going on. 
that's what I was going to ask. So that's interesting because one of the questions people would have is how much is religious? How much of it is sectarian? But if it's that fluid, probably not a whole pile. Oh, that's a really good question. So it's often pitched in really simple terms as, hey, this is a war between Iran and its proxies, Saudi Arabia and its proxies, and that's about Shiism versus Sunnism. But it really isn't like that on the ground, even though a lot of media have pitched it in that way. It's not a sectarian war. It's not only a sectarian war. There are sectarian elements. So ultimately in Yemen, a lot of these groups are just switching sides for whatever they can get out of it. Because also think about it, if you've had fairly corrupt government for three or four decades in the lead up to the Arab Spring Revolution, then you're just trying to now go with whatever it is that gives you and your tribe the most. So like choosing a manifesto? Well, yeah. Yeah. But choosing it with guns. What roles then do the external countries play here? So you mentioned Saudi Arabia and Iran. So... Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the United Arab Emirates are the biggest players inside Yemen. And they do support their loyal forces on the ground in Yemen who try to make these alignments. It would be quite helpful if all of the foreign powers exited Yemen. Um, a lot of people feel that, that would it wouldn't stop the conflict because the conflict in Yemen was domestically generated. But it would certainly help to start focusing the parties inside Yemen on coming to some kind of agreement. And in fact, this is what the United Nations has been trying to broker, a Yemeni, Yemeni political process. You you mentioned, obviously, that people are choosing with guns. So obviously, there is continuous violence. There's a loose truce at the moment. Um, but what's the situation like for ordinary people on the ground? Yes, there's been a loose truce, as you very appropriately put it, since April 2022. The parties signed up to this. It only lasted six months, but the fighting didn't pick up dramatically after that. There have been skirmishes and clashes, but nothing major. And what it, what is it like for people on the ground? Well, it's still really tough because even though the guns have stopped firing, and that's, of course, a huge relief, nonetheless, people are immensely impoverished and there isn't enough food. So the UN estimates that about three quarters of the population of Yemen need some kind of humanitarian assistance. That's over 20 million people. And awful things have been suffered by the population, not just starvation, um, but also uh, cholera. There was a massive cholera outbreak at 1.2 million cases. And and also killer diseases that shouldn't be killer diseases, killer things like measles, diphtheria, and and just not enough money to be able to buy such food as does get in. So it's a really awful situation for ordinary Yemenis. Are humanitarian organisations able to work on the ground there? They are able to work, but it's it's immensely challenging and they're not able to flow around freely. So even when they can get in, they can't always move up into the areas that need the help the most, which are the Houthi controlled areas, because the Houthis have a lot of, of roadblocks. Um, they have mechanisms to impose, I guess we could call them taxes, 
food is weaponized, aid is weaponized uh, in return for supports, for money. And there's a massive smuggling economy, a war economy. A lot of people, a lot of leaders are getting rich on the back of this black smuggling economy. So there's not that much incentive amongst some of the leaders to actually end the war. With, with saying all that, is it hard to gauge how much support the Houthis actually have amongst the population? It is quite hard to gauge because they don't rule by consensus or a representative democracy in the sense that we conceive of that idea. They they rule by fear and force and to some extent with some of their support groups, yes, by consensus. But it's very hard to know where that balance is. What I would say is that what they've been doing in the Red Sea has been quite popular. We might find that surprising, but amongst their base, who have, of course, spent the last decade or more chanting death to Israel, a curse on the Jews, seeing their leaders now fire missiles at trade ships that they think are linked somehow to Israel, of course they're not all linked to Israel, or to the West that's supporting Israel, plays quite well. Someone is sticking up for the Palestinians as they see it. Yeah, so let's move on to, to that escalation. You said you weren't surprised by the UK-US intervention, were you? And but you also weren't surprised that the Houthis took this action in the Red Sea either then. No, I think the Houthis took this action for two reasons, for opportunistic reasons. It gave them the chance to up the stakes. It gave them the chance to attain massive publicity for themselves and for the Palestinian cause, of course. And it would go down well, not just with their base, but with the broader support in Yemen. So they had political reasons and they had genuine ideological reasons at the same time. On that, the form it's taking, it's not just missile attacks. We have seen some dramatic hijackings too. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly what has been happening? So there have now been well over, well over 100 missile and drone attacks on shipping that passes through the Red Sea on its way to or from the Suez Canal, and also drone boat attacks which are more serious and normally uh, a prelude to a hijacking. Only one ship has actually been successfully hijacked to date, and that's a ship called the Galaxy Leader. That was in the middle of November. And in a sense, the multinational maritime force wasn't quite prepared at that time. So it might be more difficult now to execute a hijacking. Another one was attempted a week or so ago, and that was prevented by the United States, who actually sent out helicopter gunships and sank three Houthi boats, and resulting in the loss of life. And that was quite a major escalation. So there is this maritime force that's US-led in the Red Sea, and that is an attempt to try to prevent the Houthis from their disruption of shipping. It hasn't worked, and that's why we've now moved up a step to direct military strikes by the US and partners on uh, targets inside Yemen. Yeah, because obviously this the, the reason there was the escalation was because the impact it would have on global trade. Were we already seeing the impact or was the intervention 
to try and stop or or slow down that impact. So the impact is is now being felt, and it will get worse despite this action. Of course, it's quite slow to see the impact, but if you think that seventeen thousand ships on average per year pass through this Red Sea route, that equates to about a trillion dollars worth of trade every year, and it's up to 15% of our seaborne uh, trade. So somewhere like the UK, for example, 95% of its trade arrives by sea. So it, it also has a, has a slightly skewed effect because even if one part, factory part, uh, fails to arrive, that has huge knock-on effects on the manufacturing process which then impacts the supply chain, which ultimately impacts what consumers can buy and the prices they will have to pay. So you can see why the US and the UK and others have been so worried about what the Houthis are doing. Yeah, because I think most of us will remember the impact of the ship getting stuck (laughs) and how that had so many uh, knock-on effects on trade. So the idea that some companies are just stopping, like using an entire route or, you know, that there is life endangerment on a route, I think people will be very aware of, you know, what could happen to trade. So that kind of explains why the West intervened in this case. Is it the first time that the US has become involved in this conflict? In the Yemen conflict, the... West has been involved in supporting the Saudi-led coalition that has been fighting the Houthis for nine years, but it did not intervene directly with direct public military action previously. It was helping by supplying weapons, by helping with targeting and supplying intelligence. Uh, And so, of course, that does raise the question that if, for example, as Rishi Sunak tried to claim, the, prime, the UK Prime Minister, in one of his statements about the UK partnership in these strikes, he tried to claim that this was also in some way to protect the Yemeni people and support them against the Houthis. Well, we had nine years to do that, and we've only now got involved because our trade and economies are being affected. So I think it's pretty clear what our motives are now, even if we've been involved to a lesser extent earlier in the conflict. Who's the most important player then? So you mentioned the Saudi intervention and the Western kind of backing of that. This is all stuff that we don't hear about a huge amount on the news. And I think it'll definitely be new to a lot of our listeners. Between Saudi, Iran, the US and the UK, who has the actual power to try and come up with a Yemeni, Yemeni solution in Yemen? Oh, that's a really difficult question. The United Nations hasn't done a bad job, actually, at least under its most, its current uh, special envoy, Hans Grunberg. He's been excellent at trying to mediate between the warring sides. But he's now having to, he's having to scurry around talking to all of the international players that you've just mentioned. He he frequently goes to Riyadh. Uh, he has also to talk to the UAE, of course. He's been to Iran a few times too. And he's in very close touch with the United States and the US actually does have a special envoy for Yemen, uh, Tim Lenderking. So that's how seriously they're taking it now too. But ultimately, one of the major interlocutors 
And one of the major powers that's capable of trying to put an end to this is going to be an unsung power, and that's Oman. And the reason for that is that Oman never got involved with the Saudi-led coalition in its war on Yemen. And that has given, that kind of neutrality has given it some credibility with all sides. And it's able to play a mediating role and have the serious ear of the Houthis. So, And Oman also has open lines to Iran, is able to help negotiate with Iran. So really, Oman is quite a key player here. And uh, you mentioned earlier about the support for Palestine. Is that something that they are just using or will it become a complicating factor in trying to find peace in Yemen itself? I think it's going to become a complicating factor. It is a complicating factor because the reality is that there is massive sympathy on the ground in Yemen amongst all of the different warring groups for what's happening in to the Palestinians in Gaza. So it's going to be really difficult to fight the Houthis whilst they're claiming to stand for Palestine. There's going to have to be some kind of effort to remove this perceived moral high ground from the Houthis. And the only way to do that is by sorting out the Palestinian problem or at least by making a start in that direction. And that's not going to be just by normalizing relations between Israel and various Arab regimes, because many of those on the Arab street and amongst the masses simply don't want to forget the Palestinian problem by making peace and forgetting about it. Yeah, in your piece that I mentioned in my introduction, you said after two decades of on-off conflict, they view war as a way of life, not as a last resort. So where do you see it going from here? So I don't think the Houthis are in a mood to end the war, no matter what. It's simply that attempting to solve the conflict in Palestine and Israel would help to remove some of the support that they've managed to win and remove the moral high ground from them as as they would as many would perceive it but the houthis themselves have a completely different calculus from our military calculus they've have been at war on and off now for 20 years since 2004 so it has become not just a last resort as we would think of war but a way of life and if you're around the age of 20 22 in yemen and that's well over half the population you will not have known anything other than conflict if you've been in the Houthi heartlands. And so they've become quite immune to casualties, to suffering, to the misery that's been inflicted on their populations. And there's no, there's not much of an economy other than the war economy. Plus, if you think about having a youthful generation that's had their education interrupted, that's been recruited while they're still children, that have been uh, to summer camps, that have taught them a lot of war propaganda, then you can see that it's going to be a really long war and that the Houthis, who 
have continued deploying troops to different fronts around Yemen, even as they've been negotiating a position in the so-called political and peace processes that people hope are on their way, are, are just carrying on. So this doesn't look like a group that's getting ready for peace. It looks like a group that's getting ready to continue its war. I just have one final question, Elizabeth, from a global viewpoint. We've seen so much displacement of people internally in their countries and externally with wars. Is there a significant um, outward migration from Yemen of people um, trying to seek refuge from, from the conflict? There would be if they could get out, but they can't. It's really, really difficult for Yemenis to leave Yemen. Uh, the border to Saudi Arabia, to their north, is heavily protected. The border in the east to Oman has a huge fence built all the way along it. And then it's sea. They've got a maritime border to Somalia. Getting over the ocean to Somalia doesn't present you with a whole lot more options. Um, and then, of course, across the Red Sea to Africa. So it's really hard for them to get out. What we have instead is a situation where there are many, many internally displaced people, about 4 million of them inside Yemen, who just move around to wherever they can get food and shelter. So it's a crisis that we haven't paid much attention to because unlike other conflicts in the Middle East, for example, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, we haven't seen Yemenis rock up in our immigration centres. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on The Experiment today. I really feel like I've got such an education in 30 minutes and I know our listeners will feel that as well. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your interest and for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Elizabeth for joining me. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people can find us, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.